Welcome to the Empowered Podcast, where we bring you expert clinical perspectives on the latest health data and wellness trends. Each week, we'll cut through the noise and answer your unanswered health questions, helping you take control of your everyday well being. Hello, everyone. My name is Austin Alvarez, and I'd like to welcome you to the Empowered Podcast live stream event, Do I Have PFAS Forever Chemicals in My Blood? And on this special episode, we're going to be taking a deep dive into PFAS, what it is, where it is, the major health concerns linked to it, and how to test your own PFAS blood levels at home. And today I'm here with some great friends and PFAS experts. How's it going, everybody? So first, we actually have Erin Jurger. She's a registered dietitian um, and director of commercial ops at EmpowerDX, if you want to say hey. Hi. Glad to be here. And next is Dr. Travis Wilkes, family practice physician and medical director of EmpowerDX. How's it going, Travis? Great. Thanks, Austin. Mm -hmm. And we also have Taryn McKnight, the PFAS practice leader at our environmental laboratory. Hey, everyone. And we have uh, Andrew Patterson, the PFAS technical director at our environmental lab. First, first question for everybody in the chat is, where are you? Where, where in the world are you right now? I'd love to know whether it's city, state, country, continent, mostly locals. We have Tampa. We have Chicago. We Cincinnati, have, going, wow. Yeah, there's a... Boston, Albany, oh, Des Moines, Des Moines, Lancaster, Atlanta. Atlanta. <laughs> Anchorage. Anchorage, Philadelphia, Oklahoma. Tuscaloosa. Oh, some Is that a war well. eagle? <laughs> awesome. Australia. Nice. St. Louis. Okay, Louis. cool. Well, 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 I appreciate that. Well, should we get started with our list of, of questions? Yeah, let's go ahead and dive in. To, so today's topic is, do I have PFAS forever chemicals in my blood? So where do we start, Aaron? Well, we should probably just get the basic question out of the way. I know there's probably all different levels of people calling in interested about PFAS. You may already know a lot about it or not very much and just eager to learn. So what are PFAS and how many PFAS chemicals are there? I'll, I'll, I'll take that one, Aaron. So okay. um, first of all, you know, thank, thank you to everybody for joining. Uh, you know, we've, we've been looking to support EmpowerDX um, from through our environmental laboratory. I'm coming to you from just outside of Sacramento, California, where a lot of the method development took place for the, for the blood test. So um, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, what are PFAS? You know, the acronym stands for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. And, and really you might've heard these called um, PFCs in the past or um, PFOS and PFOA, which are two of the thousands of PFAS that are out there. Um, so, so PFAS are compounds that, that in all in common, they have, they have a, a, a backbone of a carbon chain backbone uh, bound to a certain number of fluorines. And, and then the, on the other side of the compound, we're not going to get into structures or anything. Um, there's a functional group and, and those, those two elements, the long chlorofluoro chain and the functional group really are why these chemicals were synthesized um, because of the unique chemistry. Very interesting. And do they, are they naturally occurring or man-made? Where do they uh, come no, from? These, these are 100% man-made, um, okay. really starting, starting in the forties and fifties. And, you know, we should point out that, you know, if these compounds stayed, you know, where their, their intended use was to be that, that they do have some unique and life-saving properties. Uh, the problem is that, you know, these, these aren't staying where they're originally intended and they're becoming more and more ubiquitous in the environment or they are ubiquitous in the environment and uh, we are seeing them really wherever we look uh, but they are they are not naturally occurring so gotcha. and then uh, question for you why are they called forever chemicals i've heard that term a lot uh so they're called forever chemicals because they don't have any known degradation pathway so one may exist that we discover in the future but for now um, there's no way for these to naturally break down in the environment. So as far as we know, they're going to last a very long time. We haven't really come to the end of that point yet. We're not sure how long it'll be. Interesting. Yeah, and, then, and in fact, sorry to jump on the back there, but mm -hmm. you know, that's a whole, that's a whole topic of discussion, you know, in our field, destructive capabilities, destructive technologies. How do we safely get rid of uh, PFAS 
so that, that they don't pose any risk to either the environment or to human health. Yeah, that makes sense. And then uh, what about in the body? So you said in the in the environment, they don't break down very fast at all. But in the body, is it the same thing where it just takes beyond a lifetime? Or is there a specific amount of time? Do they have a different like half-life per individual PFAS chemical? How does that work? You're right. So that's what it is. It's a half-life, which refers to the time it takes for your body to eliminate that chemical. And it is chemical dependent. So as Andrew said, there's thousands of these chemicals in this class. Um, and we've really only identified and studied a small subset of them. Um, and based on those studies so far, each chemical has a different half-life. So it can be from hours to years that it takes for your body to eliminate these. So forever in the environment, but also could be forever almost in your body or it's very hard to get rid of. Certainly longer than most people would want these chemicals staying in their body. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And what products contain PFAS? So that can be a pretty long list of things. I think it's easier to think about the characteristics of these chemicals, and that can help you understand what kind of products you would find them in. So that carbon fluorine bond that Andrew mentioned is one of the shortest and strongest bonds in nature. So because of that strength, um, it can impart really valuable characteristics like water repellent, stain repellent, um, reducing friction and tension. Um, uh, it's used in firefighting uh, chemicals, products. Um, and so it's those characteristics you can start to think of, well, what in my life has some kind of, you know, nonstick or water repellent uh, property, clothing and housing materials and that sort of thing. So speaking of, I wanted to, to launch a poll to see if everybody was listening just now. And it has to do with products that have PFAS in them. I'm going to launch this poll. Let me know if you can see it. Mm -hmm. All right, it's live. Which product does not have PFAS in it? Uh, is it nonstick cookware? Is it stain resistant cleaning products? Is it firefighting foam? Is it water resistant flooring? Or all of the above likely contain PFAS? What do you guys think? Do we right, get most, to answer to Austin? I, I think you might answer. know the answer, <laughs> Mr. Expert. Don't give them the answer. Oh, it looks like we had a, only a, a couple of them said nonstick. It's actually all of the above likely contain PFAS. So appreciate that. Good listening out there, everyone. Now, the bigger question I want to ask is why should anybody care, though? So PFAS, I mean, it's a chemical that's in our bodies. Does it, does it matter? I think we got to take a step back from that, Austin, the, as we learn more about PFAS, um, we, we aren't seeing recommended levels for drinking water or for food or for feed or anything um, increase. We're only seeing these levels decrease as we learn more about the health effects and about the longevity of these chemicals. So, you know, there was right now, there's only a recommendation in drinking water uh, from the federal government that for PFOA and PFOS, uh, these drinking water have a level less than 70 parts per trillion or PPT um, or 70 nanograms per liter of water. Um, that's a pretty small value, but we're, we're already seeing uh, the fact that state governments in the U.S. have vastly lower limits, limits than 70 PPT. Um, some are recommending uh, single digit PPT, one or two or three PPT. And in fact, um, California has a, a desired drinking water limit for PFOA of 0.007 PPT, otherwise known as seven PPQ parts per quadrillion. And, and really that's outside of the reach right now of, of any, any government or private laboratory. Um, but you can, you can see that as, as we learn more about these chemicals, really we need to be looking at lower and lower levels because of the toxicity that, that we're finding. And I'm sure Dr. Wilkes is going to chime in here a little bit, but um, when we when we first when when folks discovered PFAS in the environment, um, these levels that we were looking at, the instrumentation couldn't see as low as it can now, and also our knowledge of the chemical category wasn't as vast as it is now. That makes sense, um, Travis. Are there health risks and diseases linked to PFAS exposure? Yeah, there, there's certainly 
many health risks um, linked to um, PFAS exposure. And I mean, we're we're just scratching the surface. So when we talk about this, you know, we can talk about what we know definitely has uh, associations, but then it's really wide open just because we know so little about um, about uh, about PFAS and its its real levels in people, just because there's uh, limited information out there. And we, we know that there's all these health problems that are rising like crazy. And, you know, then it's trying to figure out, you know, which one of those are related to PFAS, but it's hard to control for sometimes in studies because there's so many different things that can, that, that can, um, that can affect things. And is it multifactorial and how does PFAS play into that? So it's like, it's like this massive question, um, but we definitely know PFAS causes health issues um, and probably we are underestimating the uh, harmful effects, but we know that they cause things like uh, liver enzyme changes, decreased um, um, efficacy of vaccines, uh, risk of certain types of cancer, um, fertil- uh, uh, birth defects. I mean, there's the, the list is massive of all the things that, um, that happen here. So. Are any of them most strongly connected to the most emerging evidence? I mean, is it is it thyroid or cancer or developmental or fertility issues that kind of are the the most in the front? So we have, I mean, we have clear associations between P, elevated PFAS levels and thyroid issues, as well as um, uh, birth defects, liver enzyme changes, cancers, particularly testicular and kidney cancer. Um, so, I, I mean, there's very clear associations. I, I worry that we probably underestimate the harmful effects just because we're, we're basing those off of uh, data that we have. And there's probably, you know, there, there's a whole world of more information that we really need to collect, understand. And it all really starts, I think, with, uh, with, with getting more access to PFAS testing because really the majority of, uh, uh, of the world has very limited access to uh, testing and understanding their PFAS level. That makes sense. And then a follow-up question to that, I guess, is are, are there specific PFAS chemicals that are maybe potentially more toxic or dangerous than others? For instance, I've heard of PFO or PFOA, PFOS, PFOS, however you pronounce it, PFOS. There's some, there's what, the 4,700 plus chemicals uh, I've read. Um, I don't know, only a handful of them are studied. Um, I mean, do any primarily I, I connect to these issues? I, I think you hit the nail on the head with only a handful have really been well studied. Um, I, I think that, you know, as we as, as we expand testing and really learn more about all these different things, I think that so many associations are going to come out of it and we're going to learn so much more. I mean, clearly now we have we understand much more about the, the main ones like PFOS, PFOA. But, you know, there, there could be subsets that have so many different issues um, that we really need to better understand. I mean, I would, uh, I would consider, you know, all PFAS molecules to be emerging contaminants, and you don't, you want to have as low levels of all of them as possible. There's no, there's no positive attribute of having, uh, of having PFAS chemicals in your body, and so, you know, I, I wouldn't, um, I would say that the more information you know about all the different PFAS molecules and your potential exposure to them, the better. If you just do a test for one, you know, and, and you, you either have that one or you don't, you're really limiting your, your ability to understand your health. Mm-hmm. And speaking of exposure, does PFAS have to be ingested to end up in your body or blood, or can it be absorbed through the skin? Yeah, so um, it probably depends a little bit on specific chemicals. So it looks like the absorption through skin is pretty limited, um, even though there does seem to be some skin absorption at high concentrations. Um, The majority of it is going to be ingested, um, either through food or water, um, and often through through food that lives in contaminated water, like fish. So if if you eat fish that come from contaminated, that live in contaminated water, um, the PFAS can concentrate in the fish, and then you eat the fish, and then you get a, a high level of of PFAS. Um, the, another, uh, another common way is, uh, is through dust. So dust that contains PFAS, um, and that can be inhaled, um, very easily. I mean, we all inhale dust 
all through the day, basically. Um, so think about it as mostly probably ingested through um, through food, water, or inhalation. That's kind of how I would think about it. And so that that includes though, you know, if you're if you're cooking on non nonstick cookware, if you're eating from food packages that uh, that are that contain PFAS, you know, all all these different ways are, are mechanisms of ingestion. Is any particular mechanism higher risk? Meaning if I cook in Teflon my whole life, how does that compare to if I have a, a water resistant treatment on my carpet or my couch and I sit on that or play with my kids on it every day? I mean, what's is there a difference in exposure? And I guess there may be a difference in chemical. How does that work? I, I think it's hard to, I think it's probably hard to quantify. Um, I mean, it's going to be really hard because how each individual person interacts with their environment is so unique. Um, you know, nonstick cookware probably has to do with how you use it, uh, temperatures and, you know, is there, how much flaking is there and, you know, all these different kind of properties, the same with, uh, you know, how, if you've got a lot of products in your house that contain PFAS and there's a lot of dust that accumulates, well, how good are you at dusting and, you know, how that, that's, uh, that's an issue with a lot of environmental contaminants like fire, um, fire retardants and things like that, they can all bioaccumulate in dust and then inhalation can be pretty massive within that. But Austin, yeah, that's a good point to keep in mind. Toxicity is all about the dose. Okay. So, you yeah. know, when we, when we set acceptable limits for drinking water, it's based off of the assumption of how much water a human being needs to and does on average drink in a day, in a year. Um, and then basing their exposure off of that assumed um, volume. And, and then to tag onto that, outside of uh, known occupational exposures, you know, you your PFAS body burden, you know, is a product of all your exposures through through much of your life. I mean, we talked about how you know compounds can have half lives of twenty to thirty years. Well, that just means that you know when that exposure stopped, that it would take twenty to thirty years for that to. De- go decrease by half well you know not many of our our lifetime exposures have stopped if you're living in the same area if you're drinking the same water eating the same types of food um it's not like all your pfas exposures stopped cold turkey overnight so you are you're a product you're a composite of all those exposures put together and in fact um you know we had when we were bringing up the method we, we tested some people from Northern California. And then we, we actually had some people that had a different PFAS pattern, their branched isomer pattern, and they, they stuck out from the crowd and this person had grown up in Maine. And so, you know, even though we didn't know much else about, you know, we didn't know about the health effects, but we could say, you know, this person was exposed to, you know, grow, you know, over growing up, this person was exposed to a different group of PFAS than the rest of us. So it is, you know, there, there are a lot of nuances to this. That makes sense. Now that brings up uh, my next question, which is location and specific groups of people. So if, is there a specific group or type of people or location that is, that is at higher risk for PFAS exposure or is, or is it just kind of even across the board because everybody has these, these products? It's, it's pretty well documented that fire personnel are, are have higher exposure levels. Um, fire personnel uh, may have a gear that's impregnated with uh, fluorochemistry. Um, that, that protects them from, you know, the fire. Uh, and they're also perhaps dealing with AFFF or aqueous film forming foam, which, which historically has had PFAS in it. So, so it is, you know, that's one group that, that comes to mind right away. Um, fire personnel, firefighters do have multiple exposure pathways that, that the average office worker would not, as well as the inhalation pathway, which is the least well understood of all of them. And kind of piggybacking on that, you asked about locations. So where AFFF was used um, repeatedly, and that tends to include places like military installations and all of this also is well documented where the Department of Defense has investigated PFAS contamination at any of their sites. And um, and then other related you know, places potentially um, airports or, you know, any place they had that potential for, say, a liquid hydrocarbon type fire had the potential for an AFFF release. And is that related to, so you put the fire out or you're practicing putting fires out and then the runoff goes somewhere, ends up in the ground, goes into the groundwater, and then people end up drinking it? I mean, I've heard stories like that. Is that usually the case with the highest 
exposure? Yeah, you're exactly right. That's what happens. It's runoff and into the groundwater and potentially groundwater is your source of drinking water and or surface water. It you know runs off into surface water. So that's exactly how it happens. That's well, kind of scary though. It's like you, you don't know what's happening until your your blood levels are probably much higher than the normal person in the United States or in the rest of the world, right? And so, I mean, how do you find out? You just at some point desire a PFAS blood test or does somebody test the water? I mean, what's usually the next step there? Yeah, I mean, you can check with your local Department of Health to understand what might be going on from these known impacted sites in your town or your city. Um, but beyond that, yeah, it's just a guessing game who may have been impacted worse than others at this point. Interesting. The way I think about it, I mean, the way I look at it is, I mean, I think that I, I approach everything that it's impossible to understand what someone's um, health factors are by looking at them. Um, you know, not, nothing about someone gives you information or data about what's happening in their body. And, you know, I've had... I've had people who I didn't think looked like a diabetic, but then they're, they're diabetic. And I've had people who look like, um, you know, they, they shouldn't have a heart attack because they run marathons and they have a heart attack. And so I think about PFAS in the same kind of way is that, you know, there's no, just by knowing somebody's geography and their occupation, you're going to miss all these people who have exposures, um, who just don't realize they have this, this massive exposure. I mean, it could be something that somebody who, you know, obsessively floss their whole life and their floss contains PFAS. It could be so many different, different things. It could be, you know, someone who um, they grew up in a place that they didn't even know when they were a baby and their, their mom breastfed them. And, you know, they transferred a lot of PFAS early in their life. And, you know, it's all these different things that, that can happen that there's no way to control for these variables. And so, I mean, to me, it, it, the only way is to really test and, and find out and know that baseline. Um, just like everything else in the body, kidney function, liver function, you, you don't know. Um, and assumptions are extremely dangerous when it comes to health. Makes sense. And we should point out that, that mo you know, most drinking water in the U.S., you know, it, there are some hot spots, but, you know, levels are generally pretty low you know, it is, it is localized. So if you test your water and, and you, you had your water tested and it comes back non-detect, you know, under the methods reporting limits, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't mean you're PFAS free. That means the water you're currently drinking doesn't have detectable PFAS. And I'm sure you, you know, and then on top of that, Andrew, I'm sure everybody has a different limit of detection, right? I mean, depending on what test you got, if you're, if, if you had some amount of PFAS, but then you're, you're only able to detect you know, 2000 parts per trillion when you should be detecting like a hundred or 200. Does that, I'm sure that factors in, I'm, I'm guessing. You know, mo most labs doing the testing now are, are in relevant ranges, but yes, it, it did used to factor in when, when the detection limits weren't quite as sensitive, but, you know, in order, in order to be able to perform PFAS testing now for water, you have to illustrate that you can get down to relevant levels. How do you feel the medical community? I mean, do you feel like they're becoming more aware of this and like would actually know to test uh, if someone had some of the symptoms that we're talking about? No, I mean, this is, um, you know, I, unfortunately the practice of medicine um, stays pretty far behind evidence. It takes a very long time um, for, for scientific evidence to actually lead to medical practice just because of the amount of time it takes to work through scientific journals into medical journals, into um, uh, medical um, associations, and then into guidelines. So that's just a very, very long timeline. And so it is not um, very well understood or well followed within the medical community. Um, not for neglect, just because the, the medical community is just kind of slow to pick up um, emerging science. Um, and so I don't think that, you know, I, I don't think that people keep on their radar, okay, this, this um, person is 22 and, and has testicular cancer, you know, is that because of a PFAS level? I've, I've, never, I've never seen anybody or heard about anybody doing that. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, I think that that will come eventually. We're just, we're, we're not there yet in the medical community and guidelines are, are um, 
are, have never been formulated around that. What's the EPA's response, Environmental Protection Agency, right? What's their response to PFAS? Okay, I got this. So it's, it's about a four hour webinar. <laughs> Two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> with the, I will say with the new administration, um, the PFAS action plan has gotten a revival, let's say. So they have something they've just released uh, in October um, called the PFAS Roadmap. It's a strategic roadmap, and it kind of talks about how all the different divisions within the EPA are responsible for playing a, a role in addressing PFAS and what their action items are. So everything from the folks who are responsible for PFAS in our air, to our drinking water, to our surface water, to controlling the toxic substances that are allowed in to be used in our commerce. Um, all of them have sort of marching orders and there are, um, timelines associated with those when they aim to pass certain legislation, enact certain guidance. Um, that's all outlined in that roadmap. And, and it's definitely kind of speeding up, uh, I'd say, under the new administration. That's good news. Um, and I know you mentioned earlier about different levels for um, the water. What is the Safe Drinking Water Act and how does it relate to PFAS? Yeah, so the Safe Drinking Water Act is a really important part of uh, protecting human health from these environmental exposures. Um, the EPA is responsible for identifying um, chemicals of concern, evaluating whether they're specifically a concern in our drinking water, and then regulating them. And that happens under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And so right now, they're partway through the process, the rulemaking process of establishing uh, drinking water limits for PFOA and PFOS. So just two of these compounds, but they're the two legacy compounds that were mass produced for decades and um, that most of the toxicology studies are based off of. So it's kind of a starting point, um, but they'll certainly have to make decisions about the rest of the class of chemicals as we go forward. I do have a question about potentially the hottest topic right now about PFAS might be Gen X and also about uh, PFBS. And I was wondering, um, do we have any EPA toxicity assessment updates on those two particular chemicals? Or uh, I think Gen X may even be a group or two or something. You, you explain, you're the expert. Yeah, so uh, as part of that PFAS uh, roadmap, uh, one of the things that the administration vowed to do was to develop additional toxicity profiles for more PFAS compounds than just PFOA and PFOS. So two that were on their list was PFBS. And Gen X is a bit of a misnomer. Um, that's a trade name for a processing aid, um, but there are a number of PFAS chemicals that are associated with it. So you'll hear Gen X referred to, but that doesn't actually refer to a specific PFAS compound. So there are a, a multitude of compounds associated with Gen X. Um, and the one that EPA conducted their toxicity study on is one that's actually called HFPODA. Um, so they released those toxicity assessments and um, the most recent one was for the Gen X and it's quite a bit lower than the draft report we had seen earlier on. So the final report um, indicates a higher level of toxicity um, than their report on PFOA which has been our primary concern to date. Interesting. So is it, you're saying lower, meaning that it takes less amount to be toxic? Right. And then how are they defining toxicity though? I mean, is it is it harmful in a specific way to the body or what, what's the determination there? Yeah, so all the toxicity assessments um, are based off of what they refer to as an endpoint. So that's either developmental uh, endpoint or a cancer endpoint or reproductive. Um, so they they pick the endpoint and what they think is the um, you know the biggest primary issue, and then they start to calculate possible exposure amounts and um, kind of that dosing I was talking about. And then from there, they do some further calculations to determine well, then what's the acceptable amount that could be in your drinking water. Um, for you not to arrive at that toxic level. And how long do they study this and how many participants and 
you know, they take, they take years, that's, which is the frustration yeah, yeah. right now. EPA is trying right. to conduct some studies to speed up that assessment. They call them rapid bioassays, mm-hmm. um, but no, no results from those efforts yet. And currently, for studies, are they just doing like a venipuncture draw of blood, or how are they? So, as far as I know, and maybe you guys can jump in on this too, um, there's the animal studies that they do, and then they extrapolate what the impact is from animals, what it would be on humans. Um, And then there's epidemiological studies where they study um, impacted communities and see what the effects are um, in that way. Um, But I'm I'm not aware of any um, human health studies done on, you know, testing done on humans. Humans are not intentionally exposed. Yeah. (laughs) Is that not ethical, right? Okay. That's that's a great point. So another question for you. Um, What about PFAS blood tests versus drinking water tests? What's the difference? What do we need to think about there? Uh, Who, we're going to maybe a couple of us will chime in on this one. Um, You know, I think I touched on it before, you know, a PFAS drinking water test, you should expect your lab to deliver results in the low nanogram per liter the low parts per trillion um, detection range for, for you know, a smattering of PFAS. Um, a couple of years ago, that could have been a list of 24 PFAS, 36 PFAS was, was the norm until recently. Um, our laboratory can test 70 different PFAS or 72 unique PFAS in water. Um, so that's the, the water really is a snapshot. It's a snapshot in time of, of what that water has in it, you know, quantitatively determined PFAS. Um, your, your blood test and maybe, maybe Travis will jump in on this one. Um, you, you know, your blood test, you know, traditionally has been done by uh, a blood draw and generation of serum and then analysis of that serum. So historically the databases do all revolve around serum. Um, but that's not to say that PFAS aren't in your whole blood. And so the, the PFAS blood tests that we have now uses whole blood because it's, it's a lot easier. It's a lot more, it's a lot more analytically challenging, but it is a lot easier for, for one to get at their own blood. You know, you don't need a full bottomist to do a finger prick test or a heel prick test. And that's so, but it is a lower volume. So some of our analytical challenges were to, to, you know, to meet empower's needs, it needed to be a really small volume of blood, but we were using the latest generation of instrumentation um, and a lot of isotopically labeled standards to be able to quantitate PFAS in blood down to about a hundred parts per trillion. And that's, that's quite a bit lower than your, your PFAS or your PFOA um, a- averages are for, for the United States. You know, it's something like uh, where our detection limits are hundred PPT for many of the PFAS, the average PFOA is around 1200 nanograms per mil. So we, if it's there, we're, we're going to see it. Gotcha. And then how do you complement those two? So do you just get, get the blood test or then are you, if you know, I guess you're locally exposed potentially through water, you do a water test. And then if the water test is positive, you do the blood test or what's a good flow there. I don't think it's, I don't think it's cart before the horse. You know, I don't think it's one way or the other. I think Travis is going to chime in though. Yeah. I mean, so my thought is you got two things. So you've got your active exposure, which is, you know, based on your water and other, other things, but largely water. And then you've got your historical exposure, which is what your blood is reflecting. So your blood isn't reflecting your exposure, you know, in the last week, it's reflecting your exposure over years. Uh, But your ongoing exposure matters a lot too. And so, you know, let's say you do you you do a PFAS blood test, and you're like, oh, my levels of these things are really high. I I wonder if they're coming from my water, or are they coming from other sources? How do I really dial into determining that uh, you know how I I stop my exposure to PFAS or reduce it as much as possible? Well, then the the water testing does become an important tool to understand. Okay, well is my water the source? Yes or no. And then you kind of, you know, you move through things and you identify sources and then, and then remove them. So the CDC has a national average study. How does someone use their PFAS exposure, exposure results to compare to that, um, that inane study? Um, I feel like I'm taking a lot of questions. You should. 
It's all you. The, the, um, it's all right. <laughs> so the, the, the PFAS, there has been studies done on the distribution of PFAS in, in blood. And so the distribution of PFAS in blood would mean, you know, what, what PFAS, you know, what's the concentration of, of a person's PFAS in their whole blood versus the plasma versus the serum. Um, so that, so that is, that is understood and we're still learning more all the time. So the whole blood PFAS test, the PFAS exposure test does have serum equivalents for select PFAS. And those we're using those peer reviewed established constant, uh, conversion factors to go from, from whole blood to, into serum equivalents. Uh, we're actually also doing another study uh, that's going to expand upon those coefficients. So the coefficients meaning how do we convert a whole blood concentration into a serum equivalent? So yes, once you're in serum equivalents, you can compare to the ANHANE study. And I guess the, the question really is about how do I know where I'm at compared to everybody else, right? So if if maybe the rest of the U.S., you, I guess you determine a baseline, I'm assuming. And then if I get a PFAS test, I can look at my individual um, compounds in my blood and then compare to what the sort of average is for the rest and then say, okay, maybe I am five times higher in my PFOA than the rest of, of the U.S. Is that the value of the of the comparison? But I think that I think it even takes like another step to think about with this. So, you know, if you like people are used to getting blood results back and having a normal reference range, that's normal. So, like, for instance, if you get um, if you get a, a basic metabolic panel, it'll have a potassium level on there and your potassium level may say three point eight. And then you look over to reference the reference range and you'll say, oh, well, I'm normal. So that's good. But the, the harder thing about PFAS is that um, the natural human level is zero. <laughs> and so anything above zero is PFAS contamination that you've been exposed to in your environment. And, and so when you look at the, at the NHANES data, you are looking at a PFAS exposed American population that, um, you, you know, that will carry some degree of health risk depending on, depending on the individual person, no matter what that is. And so you can see where you sit next to the average, but still that that's just to kind of give you, um, a, some guidance on, on scale. Um, you, your goal is ultimately to reduce your PFAS exposure as much as possible. And you may, you know, you may see differences in different PFAS. And so, you know, do you have a really heightened level of, of one um, and low levels of the other, or, or what's the distribution that that may impact some decision-making too. But, you know, I, I really think it's important that people realize that match it. Like if you hit the NHANE median value, you're not like, you're, you're not in the clear and just doing great. I mean, you still had serious exposure. Yeah, and, and, you know, maybe that's what we need to highlight about the, the PFAS exposure test is, you know, it's testing for chemicals in your body that aren't naturally occurring in your body. This isn't like a normal clinical test for vitamin D or some other endogenous chemical that, that your body makes. This is, this is something that, that you've accumulated. So, you know, it is, it is an exposure test. Um, to, because your body doesn't make PFAS, as Dr. Wilkes hinted. That makes sense. And so hopefully, as we study PFAS, we'll eventually determine with help of CDC PA, I guess, that here, here is a specific range that's, that's uh, at higher risk or more toxic than, than not, right? So eventually, I guess we'd get to that point. But for now, it's a, it's a, um, the goal is to be as, as low as possible and obviously lower than mm -hmm. the rest of the U.S., yeah, you, you know, your body levels will decrease as the exposure is removed. And so that's also what this test comes down to is choice. You know, we I think everybody would say if I, you know, if I had a choice, I would want less PFAS in my body because of the unknown health effects or because some of the health effects that are emerging. And so, you know, if, if you, if you don't know your, if you know your PFAS uh, blood levels, then you can look to make different choices going forward. Stuff to make choices going backwards, but you know mm -hmm. you can look you can look around your environment um, going forward. Yeah, that's a good, very good point. So, Aaron, I have a question for you. 
Where can we find this PFAS exposure blood test? Well, you can go to our website at empowerdxlab.com, um, order it to your home. We also have options for businesses or communities that want to order in bulk if they feel like they need to test their community. Um, and, you know, we've really tried to do a good job at getting that collection process down to a science so it's easier on the customer to take that blood sample um, and ship it back to the lab so they can get their results and get the blood test results back That's fantastic to their and, and for, for our listeners who aren't familiar it is a, a simple finger prick so you just prick your finger and use this cool new mitre device that kind of sucks the blood up into the into these tiny little fingers i mean it's a very small amount of blood right right team I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know, people, what is it, 60 microliters? Yeah, each, uh, we, d- we send out, uh, when you mm-hmm. order the kit through Empower, you'll, you'll receive a kit that has four of these tips. Each tip holds exactly 30 microliters. Um, and that's, that's sort of the, you know, the, se- the secret science um, through this meter device is that it will only pull up through capillary action the exact amount of blood. And we've tested these out uh, to be both accurate and precise. That's fantastic. And then I think you did specify, Aaron, that they are, we're testing for uh, 47, I guess we're saying over 40 different PFAS chemicals, and we can get into the nitty gritty, but essentially it adds up to 47 compounds in, in your results, right? And then uh, right mm-hmm. now the turnaround time is about, is it about 10 days is what, what, what our listeners should expect? Okay. So a lot faster than probably mm-hmm. what they're used to if they're, if they're work, working with uh, the different group. Um, so that's fantastic. Yeah. Once their sample arrives at the lab, then 10 Fantastic. days Fantastic. And then what, what should, if, uh, if for all of our listeners who are interested in getting uh, their organization or group connected with for, um, some PFAS tests, who do they reach out to, Erin? They can email uh, hello at empowerdxlab.com um, or straight to me, Erin at empowerdxlab.com. We've been getting some good inquiries and um, People are very excited that the product is live. So look forward to hearing from people. Even prior to this launch, we did have certain groups that were excited that there was there was a sim- more simple solution through Empower. Um, because if you think about, if, you, if you're starting a position, if you're starting a job that may expose you to PFAS, well, you should you should have your baseline levels tested because you know this this protects both parties. You know, if you show up for day day one of the job and you have a, a drug screen and a background screen and a, a PFAS blood screen, you know, now you have established a baseline. So your levels starting this new position shouldn't be going up over time. You know, your your PPE, uh, personal protective equipment should be guard, you know protecting you uh, against further PFAS exposure. And you know, conversely, on the other hand, you know, if you start show up day number one and you have very high PFAS body burden, you know, your 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 new employer. Didn't didn't cause that. You you sh- you already showed up with that. So so really, it's it's a two way street, and it does it does put everyone on a level playing field. Awesome. Well, I wanted to transition into a time of uh, Q and A. So go ahead and find that little chat box at the bottom of the screen. If you do have any additional questions, please enter them. I have seen a handful of questions in there, and uh, I'll be fielding mm-hmm. them along with Aaron. So if if we want to go ahead and take a look, um, some of them were answered along the way, like. Uh, Clay was asking about hotspot locations, um, and we did discuss that a little bit. Um, is there? Do you know if there's anywhere we can find a map, or uh, somewhere on the internet where we could maybe look it up and say, okay, here, here's I'm in a hotspot, um, or is it just looking up, you know, firefighter foam, or what's what's the way to locate it? Um, the Environmental Working Group (EWG) they maintain a map of the U.S. of sites that um, they've pulled information from various databases. Um, so uh, a big part of their map is made up of the investigations that have been done at military installations uh, that have found PFAS. Um, they have a map that I think is speculative based on industries that have the potential to use PFAS. So no data collected, um, but just the potential um, that there could be PFAS in those regions based on um, those manufacturing sources. 
Um, so that's, you know, that's a place you could start. Uh, but I would encourage you to reach out to your local departments as well. Like I said, the Department of Health or the, your a local environmental department, whether that's uh, uh each state has a different name for their environmental regulatory agencies, but they can give you information on um, all of those kind of site investigations that have been done where they have to report that data to the state. That makes sense. Now, next question, we had a few of these questions, a few different people um, asking about their products. Should they just get rid of these products now? I mean, if somebody has six Teflon pans in their kitchen or they use the treatment on their carpet, I mean, if you can, should you? I mean, I'll, I'll take one stab at this. It's so hard to know what products have PFAS and which ones don't. Um, there are some uh, companies that make an effort to market that their product is PFOA free, um, you know, or certain certain chemical free. Um, but you run the risk of those just having substitute a different PFAS chemical for PFOA. Um, others, um, other manufacturers don't even necessarily realize that there's PFAS in their supply chain. Um, so it's really a tangled web that everybody's trying to untangle right now. And it's hard to, to know what could be um, in these products or not, unless you go back to some really fundamentals, let's say like stainless steel uh, cooking pans, not treated with anything, cast iron, typically not treated with anything. Those may be safer bets. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Austin, I see a question here. Please. Um, have there been any studies to determine what proportion of PFAS exposure comes from drinking water versus through consumer products or use from the environment? I think those kind of studies are really hard to do. I mean, that's the, that's the problem is separating the stuff out is really hard and trying to understand environmental exposure in general is, is, is just, um, I, I don't even know how someone would design a study like that because you'd have to control somebody's whole life Truman Show style. And uh, that, that would just be very hard. Um, you know, that, that, that's the thing. I mean, the way, the easiest way that I've sort of um, come up with to think about, about PFAS exposure and really all environmental exposures is to think about sun exposure. And so, you know, we're, we all have sunlight exposure um, unless someone lives underground and, there's not that many people who live underground, um, but you, you know, you you maybe you could have had a sun, a bad sunburn when you were nine, and that can affect your risk of skin cancer as an adult. Uh, but you can't change that. You can't go back in time and, and get rid of that sunburn. Um, all you can do now is really try to uh, you know limit your sun exposure. So whether that means wearing a hat or wearing sunscreen or not going. Um, in the sun in the middle of the day. So kind of making these, these educated choices to try to protect yourself. But at the end of the day, you're going to get some degree of sunscreen. And then the, the, the levels of which you fortify yourself against that are, are tough. So, I mean, you could, you could get down to the level of making sure that you, you know, only have um, fish from, that are fish from places that are known to be P, PFAS low PFAS levels or PFAS free and check your water. And I mean, you could, you could take all these steps. I mean, like in my house, we use cast iron and, and um, stainless steel for the reasons Taryn pointed out, um, you know, you can, you can do all these things, but you're still going to have some degree of PFAS exposure. I mean, it just in transportation, you're going to have exposures. That makes sense. And, and somebody did ask a question about the report and I wanted to answer that. Is it a digital report or hard copy? It is a digital report and it's uh, it's in our secure online portal. So um, we'll send you an email the moment it's ready and you'll be able to log in to the secure portal and, and see your results. And then of course you can download that, those results, those, that, that uh, PDF, I believe, um, and print it out if you want, if you need to have a hard copy to take to, you know, local organization or group, but uh, yeah, it is digital. And then another, another question here, um, two, two people asked the same question about treatment. So I thought, I thought I heard some of our experts say there are no treatments to get rid of PFAS from your body, but is there any new evidence? Yeah, not, well, that's not exactly true. I mean, there uh, you can get PFAS out of your body. It's just not in a conventional kind of way. So you you um, you can't go and um, and and chelate it out like a metal, or um, it doesn't it doesn't pass through urine easily. 
So it's, it's in your blood and in your tissue and different, different PFAS have different affinities for different tissues. Um, but the most red, readily available way to get it out of your body is to either bleed or to have a baby and pass it to your baby, um, which, which sounds, you know, kind of, it kind of tough. I mean, it really is that, that level of, of complexity to get it out of your body. So, you know, there, there could be a role and it's been studied um, with phlebotomy where you actually, where you actually draw blood out with the intention of lowering PFAS levels. Um, and for people who have very high levels, that may be an effective, uh, an effective measure to, um, to, to get rid of uh, to PFAS by literally, you know, on some regular interval, uh, getting blood drawn and, uh, you know, a couple, a couple pints at a time and, and reducing your PFAS burden that way. See one here, Austin. It's kind of a technical question, probably for Andrew. Mm-hmm. Why is blood more challenging as far as testing for PFAS, and how does the matrix differ um, from serum to serum from a challenging perspective? Uh, so that's that's a good question. Uh, one of the you know one of the first steps with generating serum is that you let it clot, and so the clotting um, is 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 happening for proteins. And so when, when we have, when we have serum, it is, you know, it's out without the red blood cells, without the hematocrit um, and the white, white blood cells for that matter. And you've also removed the, the clotting factors. So you have, you have a lot less complex matrices than you do with whole blood. So with whole blood, everything that you removed in the serum generation, you, you have to deal with, you know, we're, and we're tackling that with, with, with some complex prep steps. Um, and then also we're utilizing isotopes. You know, one of the first steps we do when we get these samples back is we spike in our suite of isotopes um, and let it absorb to that tip. Um, so then they're going to be mimicking everything that the PFAS we found in your blood um, uh, are mimicking. So um, it's a way for us to be able to quantitate uh, in a complex matrices with, with, with accuracy. But yeah, it's without going into a ton of detail, um, it it, it posed some challenges, but we're confident in the results. And even the lab has to be completely PFAS free, right? The kit contents, everything. Yes. For these, for these samples, um, really, really the lab that's supporting Empower, we have a lab within a lab. Uh, there's a dedicated mm-hmm. blood extraction area, processing area. Um, they're also analyzed on instruments just dedicated to blood samples. So it's a very unique workflow. Perfect. Yeah, that concludes our live webinar for today. Um, Please stay tuned for future PFAS webinars, and we'll be publishing this as a live stream recording um, on the Empower DX podcast. And so until next time, stay empowered. Thanks for listening to the Empowered Podcast, your trusted advisor for all things health and wellness. For more information on how you can take control of your health, visit EmpowerDXLab.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. Until then, stay empowered.